the Eighth Circuit Network. We make things. Put them in your brain. Hello, funky listeners, and welcome back to Funk Radio, your favorite podcast for all your favorite funky hits. This is your host, Peter. And this... <clears throat> God. <laughs> Do you ever, like, start to talk, and then because your mouth is moistening itself, you just blurt out a giant saliva bubble? Yes, I do. Well, that maybe did or didn't just happen. Okay. Um, my name is Kyle, and I, and, I, and I blow bubbles. <laughs> and I am bubbles. Oh, I started watching that show you recommended me, Peter, uh, Trailer Park Boys. Yeah. Oh, my. I'm, like, only four episodes in, but it's just amazing. <laughs> I'm pretty sure Bubbles is the greatest character ever written. Yeah, he doesn't, he doesn't appear as much in the first couple of seasons, but then... Later on, he, he becomes one of the main characters. I like Ricky, but Ricky just is obviously just... Well, he's really unlikable on purpose. Yeah, he's... Exactly. He's, like, supposed to be unlikable, but I like him because he's unlikable. Yeah. Julian, I mean, I don't know. I don't want to spoil anything for myself, but he kind of just seems like the straight guy. Like, that, you know, all the, the other goofier characters play Yeah, off. Well, I mean, at least he tries to be. Yeah. <laughs> as much as you can in that environment. For those of you who have no idea what we're talking about... It's a sort of a mockumentary comedy series from Canada about a bunch of very obscene marijuana-obsessed people in a trailer park. Chicken, chicken finger-obsessed? Yes, and they like chicken chicken fingers as well. Is, life is about more than getting drunk and eating chicken fingers. <laughs> exactly. And I was just like, wait a second, that was like my entire college experience. <laughs> But yeah, it's one of those, it's completely not deep at all, it's just purely for entertainment purposes, and it's pretty hilarious. I love, I love the, um, the assistant park manager, he's just always has his shirt off for no yeah. reason. <laughs> and he's Randy. got like a big pot belly. <laughs> oh. Yeah, good stuff. So, moving on to our actual topic for today. Well, yeah. What do we have for today, Mr. Kyle? Um, today, I don't know where I came up with this idea, but it just dawned on me. I thought it'd be cool to talk about some R&B and soul and whatever artists that um, did music for 19, uh, specifically 1990s animated feature films. Originally, we were obviously going to expand that, but then we realized that all the films we were finding were from the 90s, so we're like, screw it. And if you're if you're our age, which is about 23 or so... A lot of these will hit home. Yeah, because I mean, these are the movies that we grew up with. And even if you are a little bit older or younger than us, I think you'll at least remember some of these. Yeah. I think when you just look at the songs specifically, instead of just the movies even, you get a very 90s feel for oh, some of this oh, stuff. So. Oh, completely. This first song uh, that we're going to discuss is the song True to Your Heart by 98 Degrees, mm-hmm. featuring Stevie Wonder. Now, for those of you that forgot the terrible music that came out in the 90s, <laughs> 98 Degrees was one of the many boy bands of that era, along with, like, what was it, Insane, and Backstreet Boys, and New Kids on the Block, and, oh, and Criss Cross. Remember those little black kids that would wear their pants backwards? Oh, Chris yeah. <laughs> Criss Cross. <laughs> that was, like, their entire persona was based on the fact that they wore their pants backwards. So, yeah, True to Your Heart by 98 Degrees. They should have called Chris themselves Steve. ass backwards. <laughs> that is the best name for a band or group ever <laughs> but for those of you that don't know True to Your Heart is, uh, was written for the movie Mulan which came out in what 1996 yeah no, no earlier than that yeah. 
Yeah, I think this is actually what spurred this whole idea because I watched Mulan on Netflix for some reason, and then I remember that I remember that song because I remember the music video was played on Disney Channel like incessantly. <laughs> I just oh remember God, the old Disney Channel. I just oh god, yeah, right. By the way, Mulan was ninety eight apparently. Ninety eight, thank you. And I just remember it having Stevie Wonder, and he played the harmonica, and he was <laughs> kind of chubby. Not as chubby as he is now, chubby. And it was really funny. <laughs> but the funny thing is, actually, this song, despite being written for this Disney movie, actually peaked at number 51 on the UK charts, <laughs> of all places. The story of the film actually was based on an old um, Chinese fable, basically about the same idea. This girl goes to fight in her father's place in a war, because traditionally they have this first son, but the father has no sons, so he would have to go otherwise. And it was like this old Chinese fable that like just evolved through retelling. And I guess in the initial fable, that like the further, the I guess earliest example that they could find, the daughter doesn't ever actually get caught being a woman. They hmm. just stays, I don't know, is, is considered a man for the rest of her life and hmm. saves China. Uh, but that would be kind of a weird ending. Movie. I was gonna say that would make for an interesting movie. <laughs> but I guess for Disney, that the, the movie Mulan actually began as a short, straight-to-video film called China Doll, which is a little racist. It's like borderline racist. <laughs> that's what I just said. I'm like that's a little racist. Yeah. Um, about an oppressed and miserable Chinese girl who is whisked away by a British prince, charming. To happiness in the West. Oh God. Wow. The, okay. Oh God. Wait. So, oh, it began as that so, short, and then it kind of developed. Into so it. it was basically Pocahontas for the Asia. Cool. <laughs> um, then uh, the Disney, uh, a Disney consultant at the time, and children's books author Robert D. Sansusi, Sosi Sansusi, suggested making a movie based on the Chinese poem, The Song of Fabulon again, surrounding around that old fable. So Disney combined the two projects into a feature length. So basically, he saved Disney from being racist. (laughs) Um, Because they probably got enough flack from, like, what, Aladdin and Pocahontas. (laughs) Yeah, Um, actually, like, the whole 90s, that's, like, when all, like, the the different race characters started. Yeah, the cultural cultural Disney thing. Yeah. But yeah, I just remember the song. I remember the song wasn't actually in the movie. It was basically just used to advertise the movie, which made me very sad. Was it in the credits? I think it might have been in the credits. Uh, but yeah, so I guess good for Stevie Wonder. I totally now wish that Stevie Wonder would have done the voice of the little dragon dude instead of Eddie Murphy. Because that would have been dude, Stevie Wonder way, the more, way more hilarious because he would have just bumped into everything. Oh, God. Wow. <laughs> That's his entire persona. It's like Mr. Magoo the dragon. <laughs> Dang it, we love Eddie Murphy, too, though. Yes, we do love Eddie Murphy. Oh, Eddie Murphy. Didn't we talk about that one song he did in the 80s a while back? Yeah, he did a couple of With uh, Rick James. I don't remember the name, name of oh, it. Oh, it, like, it was like Party in Your Pants or something stupid. Well, there was... Party All the Time. Party All the Time. Was there also another one, like Something in Your Butt or something? That was the comedy album he did. Uh, it was called, like, What What in the Butt or something. And he just talked uh, about different things in your butt. Uh, it, it was basically stroking, but putting things in your butt. Cool. Yeah. Um, but anyways, we do love Eddie Murphy, and we love his music. And and we love Stevie Wonder as well. Good portion of his movies. I, 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 I separate Pluto, Pluto Nash from all of that. But yeah, let's actually listen to a little clip of 
True to Your Heart by 98 Degrees featuring Stevie Wonder, and you can hear a little bit of Stevie Wonder's awesome harmonica. For our next choice, we have a more of a pop song called Stand Out by Tevin Campbell for the terrific movie, A Goofy Movie, which was released by Disney in 1995. Oh my gosh. Okay. I have to say this really quick. Go ahead. Okay. The, remember the very beginning of the movie where Max has that weird, like, dream that he's with a girl and then somehow turns into his father? Oh, yeah. That literally scared the ever-living shit out of me as a child. Because <laughs> I think I, I probably saw it, like, right after it came out, so I was, like, five. And he just, like, somehow transformed into his father in this, like, werewolf-like montage. <laughs> yeah, that was, that was I don't know why, but I was just, like, forever scarred by that. I don't. To this day, I think I close my eyes when I know that, that scene. Is <laughs> yeah, kind of a weird way to begin. Right? Such, it's such just like, movie. oh, here's a kid's movie. Oh, here's a terrifying werewolf-like transformation of someone into this grotesque version of themselves. <laughs> Goofy's buck teeth, like, jutted out from his gums, and then, like, yeah. his feet, like... Got all big. Got all big. And that, I think, okay, that probably I think, scared you more. I was going to say, I think that is the initial set-off that scared me, because I'm pretty sure I discussed this on the show before. As a child, I had this phobia of large feet, mostly surrounding around the idea of clowns. But that did not help. <laughs> did you fear that one day you were going to be chasing a girl and then turn into Goofy? Yes. Um, Although I did like a lot of the self-reference in the movie. Like, um, I forgot what of his friend's name was, the one that always ate cheese whiz. He was like, oh, yeah. he was like, why do we always wear gloves? <laughs> so that was that's something that's really appealing about the movie is it's one of the few Disney movies that kind of makes fun of the Disney universe. Yeah, they did it a few times. This is one of my favorite movies as a kid, probably. Yeah, it's pretty good. So regarding the song, or actually, rather, the uh, the artist, Tevin Campbell, he's an R&B singer-songwriter from Texas. Um, he got into the music scene in the late 80s and has since worked in production with such artists as Quincy Jones, Prince, and many others. His debut single, Tomorrow, A Better You, Better Me, reached number one on the Billboard Hot R&B slash hip-hop singles chart in June of 1990. So that's a pretty good start for him. Yeah. He did have a relatively good growth in popularity um, throughout the early 90s, and he was involved in a lot of uh, collaborative music projects, and he actually earned a few Grammy nominations along the way, so that was pretty cool. I don't think he won any, um, but he, he, he did get nominated at least two or three times, which is pretty cool. And so in 95, but the mid-90s, mid 95, he made two songs for a Goofy movie. One was called Stand Out, which we're talking about specifically. And the other one was called um, Eye to Eye. Both were in the film, and I think Stand Out was a little bit more prominent, though, because that was the one they played, I think, at the beginning and at the end. Mm. And Campbell also provided the voice for the pop singer character in the movie called Powerline, who performs the songs in the film. But going back to his career for a second, so that was 95, and then his work in the late 90s after that um, wasn't that well-received, and he kind of had a big drop in popularity. But he has made a few scattered appearances um, in the last 10, 15 years. And he actually, he stated, and I think it was an interview, he stated that he wants to get back into making music again more seriously. Um, I guess we'll see if that happens. 
for the for the third installment of the Goofy movie series. Oh yeah. Oh the the sequel. Yes, Goofy Rises. <laughs> Do you okay? This is kind of stupid. Do you remember the spinoff TV show to this movie that was on Disney Channel? I think it was called like Goof Troop or something. Oh yeah, I remember that. And it, but it was like set like earlier than the movie. It was like Max was a little kid because it was supposed to. Oh uh, yeah. A bit more kid friendly. Right. I don't know why I remember that show. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of really. I don't weird... remember it being bad. No, it was. It was. I mean, it was just like any other Disney show at the time. It was decent. It wasn't yeah. like Hannah Montana. Back when Disney actually had cartoons on their on uh, <laughs> on their channel. Yeah. But yeah, I remember that. I remember Smart Guy, <laughs> with that little black kid whose name I forgot. That was that was what first introduced me to black sitcoms. I'm not kidding. Well, maybe Bill Cosby because I used to watch that uh, when I was really little. <laughs> Did I ever tell you um, the time a couple years ago in college when Ryan and I wanted to watch a goofy movie and we had that physics class together? So I brought my laptop <laughs> and I brought like bud headphones and so we each had one in one of our ears and then we watched goofy movie in the back of the class. That's the coolest thing. During the movie. Well, it was also dumb because it was kind of risky and it didn't end up being that cool because. Um, yeah, and this was like halfway through the semester, but um, up until then, pretty much everyone always had their laptops out and didn't participate in the class at all, mm-hmm. and because nobody was paying attention. And then on that same day that we were about to watch it, the professor says, "Okay, everyone, you're not allowed to have laptops anymore unless you're taking notes." I don't remember what it was, but basically, like, they were being really strict about laptops starting on that day. Mm-hmm. But I think we ended up watching at least part of it. I think we may have watched the rest of it later, but. Um, it was kind of cool watching a goofy movie during class. I, I can't tell you, like, how many professors I had at one point or another that, like, kids would bring their laptops, and then, like, after the semester, they'd be like, okay, you guys aren't paying attention to me, no more laptops. Because like, no one did pay attention. Three, like, three different professors. Well, it's like, it's like a Catch-22. It's like, you know, students in a modern age need laptops for productive activities, but then they don't use their laptops for productive activities. They go on Facebook. Or like in my case with uh, that English writing for film class I t- we took, I was on Reddit all the time. Oh, that was like the golden age of Reddit for you. That, was that whole semester. Was... <laughs> yeah, it was just nothing but Reddit. And then I remember at one point of the class, I found this amazing gif of like a basketball mascot on roller skates falling down. Oh, yeah. And I literally burst out laughing in the middle of class <laughs> for like two minutes. <laughs> Yeah, that was hard when you would show us funny pictures. Oh, yeah. Because, because, like, we had to try to not make noise laughing. Yeah. And then when we weren't doing that, we were trying to get the professor to say tea as much as we could because he had an Australian accent that we somehow <laughs> associated with British. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> that guy was awesome. Yeah, that guy was cool. Yeah, like, he was actually a really good professor. Yeah. Um, Believe it or not, I learned stuff in that class. Yeah, well. no, I did too. So we weren't total slack offs in college that just that make one. us sound terrible. Yeah. Well, in, in half of our classes, we had to use computers because it was digital arts, so... That's true. But it, those were the kind of classes where, like, because the teacher professors would be, you know, going a mile a minute with, like, tutorials or whatever, you you had to keep up. Yeah. Did we ever actually listen to this song that we've been talking about for, like, the last ten minutes? We have not listened to it yet. I think we um, should. On the show, I mean. Obviously. Yeah, no, yeah, I'm sure I've heard it before. I think we should <laughs> do that so that our episode isn't, like, two hours long. Okay.
memories softly blowing in the wind. So that song we just heard was Stand Out by Tevin Campbell, made for the movie A Goofy Movie. And it was not Memories by Barbara Streisand. <laughs> um, next up we have Tutti Fruity by Little Richard, which was featured in the movie The Brave Little Toaster, which is probably one of my favorite non-Disney animated films. Yeah. For those of you that don't know about this wonderful film, it was a 1987 animated feature adapted from the 1980 novel of the same name by Thomas Ditch. The film was directed by Jerry Reese, and it was set in a world where household appliances and other electronics uh, were basically anthropomorphic, having the ability to speak and move, pretending to be lifeless in the presence of humans. So basically, Toy Story before Toy Story. Um, The story focuses on five appliances in particular, a toaster, a lamp, an electric blanket, um, a radio, and a vacuum cleaner, who go on a quest to find their original owner after they were abandoned in a move. Yeah. This, you know, as I was telling you before, like, as much as I love this movie, and I have fond memories of it as a child, it was really, really dark and kind of depressing. Yeah, it really was. Well, you know that this movie was originally a movie that Brad, not Brad Bird, Maybe it was, it was either Brad Bird or Lasseter, or one of the two, wanted to do under Disney, and he proposed the idea to them. Roy Disney at the time shat all over the idea, and basically that's what caused Brad, uh, Lasseter, I think, to get fired. And then, uh, yeah. up, and then I got picked up by somebody else, which I don't know if this has any reason to do with that, but it does have a very similar plot, at least loosely based, with Toy Story. You know, In a way, yeah. Anthropomorphic objects... And it deals with the same theme of abandonment. Exactly. Anthropomorphic objects that go lifeless around their owners who are abandoned or feel abandoned and therefore have to find their owners again. Loosely, it's the same thing. Yeah, basically. Just instead of appliances, it's toys. I think the first Toy Story was a little bit more lighthearted for the most part. I think the second, especially the third, got a little bit more deeper and darker with the theme. Yeah. Hold on, I'm trying to research and see if it was Brad Bird or the other one. Okay. Well, I think that one of the parts that we both remember as being scary is when that air conditioner basically kills oh, himself. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> that was pretty terrifying. Yeah, the air con... I, I totally... I want to look up who did that the air conditioner's voice, because that was a totally distinctive voice. Oh, yeah. Oh, Phil Hartman. Oh, yeah, that was him. Because he was in the... He did the last stuff for The Simpsons, right? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, yeah. No, no, no. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, he's, yeah. he's a really big famous voice actor and I was just like I know that voice <laughs> but yeah on the outside of the movie when they're in this abandoned house the air conditioner somehow goes on the fritz while ranting on about like how they're abandoned and losers and then he goes insane and blows up <laughs> yeah it's kind of terrifying it was pretty that and the scene in the junkyard with the giant magnet thing chasing them. oh god yeah and then the one and then the scene where the lamp has to I don't know, use his lamp as like a beacon or something, and then the, the, uh, his... Oh, light... when he gets hit by lightning. Yeah, he gets hit by lightning, it shorts out, and then basically, like, dies. But then somehow they bring him back to life or something. Oh, yeah. Yeah, uh, there's a lot of weird stuff in that movie. So... It was kind of depressing, because, like, the blanket or whoever was the baby was all scared, oh. and the arrows were trying to, like, console him, but then the vacuum was like, we're all abandoned, we're all gonna die. Yeah, and then, <laughs> so. the to- and then the toaster kept getting fed up with them, even though the blankie, like, looked up to the toaster. Yeah, oh, yeah. Um, God, so sad. <laughs> I do remember, re- I remember when I was researching, I, was, I read a re- uh, short review that basically, like, said, you know, this is a movie that is great for children, but doesn't, how, how did they phrase it? It doesn't, like, 
dumb itself down for kids. Mm-hmm. So it's like a very highbrow children's film because it deals with a lot of very deep, dark emotions and circumstances, for, like even yeah. for kids. But it's still kind of a kids movie. I kind of want to watch it again. I do too. I, I haven't seen it in years. I want I, to see it again. I just I remember also on the outside of the film, the radio, like when they wake up, the radio plays the song "Tutti Free by Little Richard. Uh, oh yeah, we're getting back to the song. <laughs> draw, I'm drawing to at least. Yeah, I forgot. Uh, it plays the song "Tutti Fruity by Little Richard, which also stuck in my head now forever as a child because of that. <laughs> the song itself was co-written by Little Richard and was recorded in 1955 and became his first major uh, hit record, actually, with its opening cry of... I can't even pronounce this properly. Exactly. And its hard-driving sound of wild lyrics. It uh, would not only become... A model for many future Little Richard songs, but also a model for rock and roll itself. That's cool. Because yeah, I remember all the appliances were kind of like throwback appliances. Like the radio was very, uh, very fifties-looking radio, mm-hmm. and all that. And then at the towards the end of the film, when they discover the all oh, the modern appliances, the, all the modern appliances of the eighties, and they're all like you know technologically yeah. advanced and like yeah. intimidating. It kind of was like this. I guess comment on you know the over electrific electronification I just made up that word of you know the American household with like everything being automated. Mm-hmm. Remember they remember they had the guy had like the big crazy record player thing and the blender that talked and oh yeah. <laughs> um, so it's kind of one of those things like you know modern appliances can't replace the simplicity and love of old timey things. Yeah. Yeah. What were um, they doing in this scene? Because remember, he starts, he, the radio like turns to this song and plays it. But what are they cleaning the house or something? What are they doing? Yeah, they were waking up, and when they woke, when the radio woke up, and that he played some song, and then they had to like clean the house because it's apparently like a ritual that they always do. They always clean the house, and while they were, while they were cleaning, the radio was playing that song. Yeah. Okay. Well, regarding that song that radio is playing, maybe we should listen to "Tutti Fruity by Little Richard. And you too can clean your house. <laughs> In like 30 seconds. I just remember the part where the where the blanket gets stuck in the vacuum and then the vacuum starts choking. <laughs> that was hilarious and scary. Yeah. A lot of that movie was kind of disturbing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Should we move on to our next song then? I think we should. Ooh. Our next song is called A Whole New World by Peebo Bryson and Regina Bell. For probably you could have guessed it, it's for Aladdin, which was a film released by Disney in 1992. The song was composed by Alan Menken, with lyrics by Tim Rice. Menken, who composed and produced the entire soundtrack for the film, won both the Academy Award and the Golden Globe for Best Original Score. And then, for this song specifically, A Whole New World, both he and Tim Rice uh, were given the Academy Award and the Golden Globe for Best Original Song, as well as the Grammy Award for Song of the Year. Wow. So, basically, this won everything forever in 1992. That's impressive. I also want to note that this is not the version they played during the film. That one was sung by Brad Kane and Leah Salonga. But this one, by People Bryson and Regina Bell, uh, was the biggest pop hit for both of them, which is pretty cool. 
<laughs> Sorry, when I as, as soon as I said it was the biggest pop hit for both of them, some kid in the background of your neighborhood went, "Whoa!" See, he's just impressed as we are. Yeah. Oh and then they just laugh now in okay. response to what you just. <laughs> I'm gonna close the window. That's really funny. Yes. The song peaked at number one in the U.S., which is awesome, and number nine in the U.K., which is also pretty impressive. Funny enough, I didn't know this, but it's actually the only song from a Disney animated film to top the Hot 100. Really? So, yeah, apparently. Because I know they had a lot of pretty popular songs. I would have yeah. thought, because like the next one we're talking about is Beauty and the Beast. I thought that one was. Pretty I thought popular. that one was actually bigger. That song, like, destroyed everything. Yeah, I don't know. Apparently, this is the only one that's reached number one, so... Huh. I think that's a pretty popular song as well. Not now, but it was in 1992, apparently, because it won all the awards. I just remember... Obviously, everyone remembers Genie. Yeah. Because it was Robin... I guess Robin Williams actually ad-libbed, like, almost all of that. All of his dialogue from the movie? Yeah. That's really cool. Which is pretty... I mean, that, the guy's a funny guy, don't get me wrong, but that's pretty insane. Well, the genie was such, like, a crazy dynamic character in that movie as well, so yeah, it almost so makes sense that he did that way rather than, like, having a full scripted out thing. But that's kind of impressive, though. That is. Okay, sort of both off-topic and incredibly obscure. Did you ever see the second Aladdin movie that was, like, straight to DVD? I, you mean to VHS? Excuse me. Remember, Kyle? VH, yes. Yeah, I did. Okay. It's been many years since I've seen it, but yes, I did. I know. And I think it was the one where, like, it was, like, the Hand of Midas where, like, crap turned to gold and something like that. And I remember there was a scene in that one where Genie, for whatever reason, turned into a bunch of genies and they were, like, SWAT guys going, repelling down the palace. Mm -hmm. And I remember that that scene was an homage or, and or ripoff to the ending scene of the Blues Brothers movie. Oh, really? when all the cops and police and army was at the local bank or something, because basically the Blues Brothers had at that point, you know, garnered the attention of the of the military. Um, I remember that, you know, it showed like tanks and stuff pulling up to the front of the building and like a whole bunch of army guys. And then there were SWAT guys repelling down the building and they were like going like, hut, 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 <laughs> for some reason. And I just remembered making that connection and I thought that was really cool because I'm huh. pretty sure I was the only person child at that point to ever get that. Yeah, I was going to say, that's kind of impressive for... Because, I mean, that movie probably came out, like, in mid-90s. So we weren't that old. So the fact that you made that connection is pretty cool. Yeah. Did they also have the TV show? Oh. Like, in the late 90s? Of I'm, pretty sh- I'm pretty sure at one point or another, Disney had a TV show for every 90s movie. Yeah. I remember The Little Mermaid. Oh, yeah. I remember the Aladdin show. I know they have one for Lilo and Stitch. Mm -hmm. They didn't have one for Hercules. I I don't think they have one for Mulan. I'm not sure. I totally watched Mulan 2, by the way, Mm -hmm. which was also on Netflix for some reason. And that came out in, like, 2005. And I totally don't remember his name right now, but you know the animator that they would always talk about at school who uh, who did all the like animation and concept art for that show Kim Possible. Uh, oh, I know you're some, I know the guy. Steven Silver or something. Yeah. Pretty sure that's his name. Um, you could totally tell with Mulan 2 that it was like that style. Oh, really? It was like totally different from the movie. It was very much like that sort of loose <laughs> Steven Silver-esque style. It was kind of cool. Hmm. But the plot was dumb and made no sense. Um, although it actually was a little bit more, how should I say, 
emotional than the first one because at that point in the second film, the the what is it, the soldier guy, Dark Side of the Moon dude, and Roland were married, and in the film that we're having like, you know, fights or whatever, and then they ended up sort of breaking up or whatever, and then she thought he died in some in some event and like was completely devastated. I'm just like, this is a lot darker than the first movie. <laughs> Funny. So yeah, it was. I mean, it wasn't great, but I was just like, "This is totally like not the lighthearted Mulan that I'm used to." Mm. But anyways, I digress because we already talked about Mulan. Um, <laughs> oh yeah, we're talking about Atlanta. Yeah, funny thing about the song actually is the song was actually translated into different in, into forty different languages with slightly different names and obviously sung by different people. Yeah, so, I thought that was kind of cool because I had this whole list. I was maybe like thirty-eight or so. Um, they listed, and each of them, they were all called, like, A Magical World and A New World and stuff like that. They are all slightly different because of the translation, obviously. Mm-hmm. And yeah, like we said, different people as well. Because I, I don't think people Bryce and Virginia Bell would want to sing this song in 40 different languages. Yeah. That would be kind I of terrible. I don't think they could. <laughs> Speaking of a whole new world, what do you say we listen to a little clip of it? And sure. so you can discover your new world. Okay, in Disneyland, have you ever been in line for the Casey Jr. little train ride thing? No. <laughs> no? Okay. Well, it's right, the, the the place where you wait in line for that is right next to the part of, like, the storybook land boat ride thing. Okay. Do you have any idea what I'm talking about? It's all in Fantasyland. <laughs> yeah, so. that part I know. Okay. So, it's right next, the, the line for Casey Jr. is right next to the, water, the part of the boat ride that seems for Aladdin. And they continuously on loop play an, an instrumental version of a whole new world. And so, as a kid, at some point, I remember being in line for like a half hour or something. It was some, I don't remember what was happening, but there was some ridiculous wait. Maybe it just seemed very long because I was a kid. But just hearing that over and over and over. <laughs> Did you like, pretty much want to stab yourself? Kind of. Yeah. But yeah, that's one of my memories for this song. Speaking of waiting in line. Yes. Uh, I totally remember as a kid waiting in line at a Pokemon convention because I guess at this particular convention they had this like magical thing where you can like give them your Game Boy uh, what do you call it cartridge for whatever Pokemon game you had red or blue or yellow mm-hmm. and they can install in your system that you, so that you can own Mew which was one of the super legendary Pokemon or whatever, and it could, like, learn any move. I waited, they could, like, install it into the... I don't know. It's, like, it's some stupid, chintzy thing where, like, you gave them your cartridge, they put it in this thing, and they give it back to you. It's like, oh, you have Mew now. It's like, okay. So they, like, unlocked some code or something. Exactly. It's just some stupid okay. 90s gimmick. Cool. Um, but I remember I waited in line for two hours <laughs> with my dad, and I was fine with it because I just ended up, you know, playing with this other kid trading Pokemon or whatever, but I'm pretty sure my dad wanted to kill himself. <laughs> uh, but he did it because he liked me or something. And I remember when I got there, on top of that, they had other things. There were kids playing the Pokemon card game and stuff. But there was a... You know those, like, bounce houses? Yeah. Well, there was a bounce house that was shaped like a Pikachu, 
and the entrance to the bounce house basically looked like Pikachu's vagina. That's <laughs> and you terrible. had to climb into it to get inside. <laughs> and as a wow. kid, as a kid, I you know I was just like, oh yay, Pikachu. But looking back on it, it's just like climb, climb inside my crotch, children, <laughs> and discover a magical land of bounce. So that was wow. pretty awesome. Which will tie. It was traumatizing, but it was pretty awesome. Yeah, right. Which will tie into a, uh, a subject we'll be talking about here in a couple minutes. Um, but yeah, continuing, I guess, with the Disney theme and coming off of the Pokemon theme, which basically Disney and Pokemon were like the two like superpowers of the 90s. Yeah. Sad <laughs> Power Rangers. The next song that we found was also actually done by Pima Bryson along with Celine Dion was Beauty and the Beast for the film Beauty and the Beast. Uh, it was written by lyricist Howard Ashman and composer Alan Menken, who we discussed earlier, uh, for Walt Disney Pictures' 30th animated feature film, Beauty and the Beast, released in 1991. I couldn't. I didn't know it was that old. Yeah, yeah I guess 91. I think right. I think that was like their second. It was it was the one right after Little Mermaid, so they considered it like the Renaissance or whatever of Disney. Oh yeah. It was actually originally recorded by English actress Angela Lansbury in her film role as Mrs. Potts. Oh, because she was a pot. She was like the the teapot. Yeah. Yeah. The single, produced by Walter Affans, Aff, Affanis Bader. Assafras. Assafras. <laughs> we'll go with that. Um, Afanasif. Yes, it was produced by Walter Afanasif, not Assafras. <laughs> um, and was featured, and it's the final track on the film soundtrack album. For which it was released in November nineteen, November sixteenth, nineteen sixty one. Additionally, Good job, Kyle, that was nineteen ninety one. Um. Additionally, Dion included the song at her eponymous seventeenth studio album. A pop ballad, Beauty and the Beast, describes the relationship between the film's main characters, Belle and the Beast. Because I didn't know that. Beauty and the Beast has garnered a positive reception from critics, who praised its dual role as both a musical number and a commercial single. The song won several awards, including the Golden Globe for Best Original Song, and the Academy Award for Best Original Song, and Grammy Award for Best Song Written for Visual Media. As a single, Beauty and the Beast was a commercial success, peaking at number nine on the Billboard Hot 100, becoming both Dion and Bryson's second top ten hit in the United States, to obviously behind A Whole New World. Um, Which came out, I think, the year later. Yes. Yeah. Uh, the song's success has been credited with establishing Celine Dion's career as a singer. That's cool. Didn't Celine Dion do a bunch of the music for Titanic 2? Probably. I think so. I'm not sure. Yeah, not sure either. I know that one song from Titanic is pretty damn popular. Where it's like... Roughly, yeah. <laughs> That's pretty, I mean, like, in terms of awards and this stuff, I mean, like, at least 91 and 92, like, two years back-to-back, Disney was doing very well for itself. Yeah, seriously. It was crazy. Got all the awards. Wasn't Beating the Beast the first Disney film since Snow White to be nominated for, like, for, like, an Oscar for, like, Best Picture or something? That sounds familiar, because I know it was really pretty big. Yeah, it was, it was some, like, crazy, like, circumstance like that, where it was, like, groundbreaking in that sense. And it's also kind of, I mean, the movie itself is kind of, and probably the song, by extension, have kind of remained somewhat popular because of the, the musical. Oh, there's still the Beating the Beast musical? I remember, I, the, so. I remember the Lion King one was just like a massive as all out. Oh, yeah, that one too. Uh, I think that one's still going on. Hmm. Maybe we should listen to a little clip of Beauty and the Beast. 
so you guys can find the beauty inside your peace. What do we got up next, Mr. Kyle Peter? Well, we have a cover of a Wilson Pickett song called Land of a Thousand Dances. This cover was performed by the R&B slash soul band Guy, which, hey, which guy. When, I, when I first saw like the name Guy, I thought like it was a typo or someone just didn't know the name of it, so they wrote Guy. Are <laughs> <laughs> we just talking recently, too, about how like we don't have people who we don't know, we just like come up with whatever adjective describes them and then put a guy at the end of it. Oh, yeah. I was saying, like, at work, there's some people whose names I still don't know because I don't interact with them often. So I just associate them with, like, their physical traits and then say guy. Like, there's, like, long hair guy, tattoo guy, short short Hispanic guy. <laughs> what else? Oh, there's Power Ranger guy, and the reason I call him that. <laughs> what? No, okay, there's, there's, there's a logic behind this. Is because he rides a motorcycle to work, but he's kind of chubby, and by kind of, I mean really. When he leaves for work every single day, he puts on his motorcycle jacket and his helmet and his motor pants, okay. and for some reason feels the need to, like, leave them on for, like, the last ten minutes before he leaves, leaves rather okay. than, like, you know, putting them on and then leaving, and or putting them on outside. Yeah. So he walks around with all his gear on and he looks like with a power helmet? Yeah. With the <laughs> with the visor up and he looks like a Power Ranger. Power Ranger guy. So I just call him Power Ranger guy. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. I have a few quote unquote guys at my work too. I think I used to do it more. I think I know more people now, so I don't do it. Didn't you say you did that to like one of the VPs or something? Well no, I didn't not to him, but I, I called him I in my mind I call him VP guy because I didn't know his name. <laughs> and he was like pretty big guy, so I don't know. Not I mean like position with big boss guy <laughs> but yeah i think i think that all i think that all started in chapman because we had different people around campus that provided different services to us like chicken fingers and pizza and we would just associate oh, we them we would just associate them with the food that they served there was like uh, combo number five guy it was grilled chicken guy who was supposedly his brother oh grilled chicken guy was the guy in the calf that would give you those like chicken breasts yeah, but he also made chicken nuggets too, which is awesome. The chicken nuggets were good. The chicken breasts were awful. They were always so dry. I hated them. Yeah, they were pretty good in sandwiches. Because, I remember, I used to always make well, sandwiches. Because you put mayonnaise and stuff, and it like infuses the breast back with moistness. I guess. Yeah, I remember I got one like by itself one time and tried to eat it, and it was just like eating a tire. <laughs> um, but yeah, there was that, and then there was. Um, there was always oh, wasn't it pizza guy or whatever that served pizza at the at the Doy's place. <laughs> I don't remember what the pizza place there was called, but it was Doy's place, but we called it the Funk. Oh, that place. Yeah. Oh no, that was um, Funk Master Pete. That's right. <laughs> and then he like disappeared after like a year and a half. Oh yeah, that's that was sad. sad. He was really cool. I miss him. Yeah, me too. That's... Should we talk about the song? No, I just want to rem- <laughs> I just want to reminisce about college some more. What were we talking about? <laughs> we were talking about um, Land of a Thousand Dances by Guy, which was featured in the film Fern Goalie. Actually, but this will tie back into college in just a few seconds here, Kyle. Yay. 
The film was released in April 1992 and was directed by Bill Croyer. And do you want to tell our listeners who Bill Croyer is, Kyle? Yeah, um, the reason this is tying back into college is because Bill Croyer was actually um, our digital arts academic mentor, mentor dude, slash professor. For like three years or something. Yeah, and he is most famous for both this movie and his work uh, as visual effects supervisor on the original 1982 Tron. So <laughs> he's pretty big. He was he was, although he seemed like a, sometimes impeding in in the process of us doing our theses. Ultimately, yeah. ultimately, he was a cool guy. No, he was a really cool guy, yeah, and he's he really experienced, and he knows. He's like buddies with like pretty much all the big names. I know he like he like knows his crap when it comes to like knowing people and stuff. He got yeah. He got Brad Bird to come talk at Chapman, yeah. who, for those of you that don't know, is one of the head honchos at Pixar, and also did the film Iron Giant, which we'll be talking about in a little bit. Oh, who's that guy who made like Fairly Odd Parents and all that stuff? Oh. I remember his name, but he was really Yeah, cool. yeah, they got him. They got the guy that directed the movie, uh, that movie Nine, that animated film. Oh, yeah. Tim Burton. Oh, and uh, Robert Zemeckis. And Robert Zemeckis. Okay. So, yeah, a lot of big people that we got to come and speak, see speak, who obviously you wouldn't get the chance to otherwise. Thanks, so, Bill. Thank you, Bill. You're cool. You and also, his wife taught there, too. And oh, yeah. So I, loved, really cool. I loved his wife. Yeah. She was, like, the nicest lady ever. And we made her cry. <laughs> oh my, I have never, ever felt so bad, like, in college. But I've, cause I forgot, like, the circumstances. Basically, like, we were stressed out because of this project that we had to do for, like, 3D animation. Yeah, for another and, class, and then we were working on it during our class. And her class, which was 2D animation, was also in the same room, which had computers for some reason. Um, so we're just like, well, she's, like, lecturing and stuff. We're just like, screw it, we're at a computer station, let's just get this thing done. Because we can do the drawing anytime. I think yeah. that was our logic. Our logic was like, yeah, we can do the drawing at home, let's, you know, do these while we're here. Yeah. And she saw us working on this other project, and she's... She first she was upset and then she actually like became got really offended and started to cry. Yeah, uh, I felt so bad. And we're just like, oh, no, don't cry. <laughs> so after she was like really nice. After yeah. class, we like came up and like apologized profusely. Yeah, but then then she was cool after that. Yeah, she was. I don't think she, I, I don't think she held a grudge. I still remember because her and um, Bill uh, would rescue dogs often and like you know find homes for them, yeah. and she actually named one of the dogs Kyle. And I, thought oh, okay. was, I thought there was like the sweetest thing ever. That's really cool. Yeah. <laughs> um, I wonder if she cried when she had to give away the dog. <laughs> I'm, I don't know. I'm sure getting, giving away any, any of them was probably not easy. All right. But um, yeah, they were yeah. really cool. So so yeah. back to Bill Croyer, who was the director of this film, Fern Gully. Yes. So, and obviously this was, this was like pretty much like an independent film of some, or it was just, I don't remember who distributed it, but it wasn't Disney. It was its own thing. So it wasn't quite as popular as some of the others, like Beauty and the Beast and all those. But um, I mean, it's still a movie I remember from childhood, mm-hmm. which is kind of cool. I remember thinking initially that the villain in the movie, which was made of, which was like this amorphous blob made of oil, yeah. I thought he was made of sewage. <laughs> so I basically thought he was a poop monster. <laughs> well, you know, what was it like pollution or something? I don't remember what it was. It's been it was a while since. Like, it was like remember it was like sludge, and he wanted yeah. to like consume the forest. Because, oh, and the fairies had like, to like stop the. Because the fairies were like the tree. The trees feel pain. Yeah. And it was basically like Avatar before Avatar. Mm-hmm. Uh, its original score was composed by Alvin Silvestri, and I recognized his name because I realized because I looked looked him up because I recognized his name. He's actually 
well known for a lot of really big soundtracks to big movies like Back to the Future and Forrest Gump, Predator, uh, The Avengers more recently, and many others. Wow. So I found that kind of impressive that they were able to get him on this relatively small movie um, to do that. So I thought that was really cool. That's separate from the song we're talking about, though, because uh, the soundtrack, as well as having original score, also has a list of eight or so like uh, lyrical songs, most of which were written specifically for the film. And actually, one of the songs was performed by Robin Williams because he was the voice of the bat. Oh, yeah. Totally forgot about that. Yeah. Was actually, name- yeah, that's another thing, is they got Robin Williams on this. Wasn't his name just Batty? Yeah, I think so. That's awesome. So, as I mentioned earlier, Land of a Thousand Dances is actually a kind of a classic R&B soul song by Wilson Pickett. But the version played in the film is by the artist Guy, who we talked to, well, we almost talked about earlier, but we kind of got sidetracked. They're an R&B soul band that formed in 1987 and saw some relatively minor success throughout the late 80s and into the early 90s. Land of a Thousand Dances was one of their final recordings before they split up for the first time in 1995, a couple years later. Kind of funny because the group apparently has split up and regrouped at least three times since the 1990s. And I think they're together right now for like the third time. So I found that kind of bizarre. The group's lead member, Teddy Riley, aside from doing work for the group Guy, also produced for artists such as Boy George and Michael Jackson, among others, but those are probably the two biggest names that he worked with. And he was also a pioneer. I found this interesting. He was a pioneer in the New Jack Swing style of music throughout the 80s and uh, late 80s into the mid 90s. And that style during this time was kind of a mixture of jazz, dance, pop, swing, and hip hop. And apparently he's one of like the top names that developed this musical style. So I didn't know that. That's pretty cool. That is pretty cool. Should we go ahead and listen to a clip of Land of a Thousand Dances by Guy? Only if you promise to do a thousand dances in that time span. I'll try. I honestly have no idea. I mean, as a kid, I guess I didn't make, didn't really give a crap, but I had no idea that it was covered by someone else. I thought that was Wilson Pickett, because it sounds kind of similar. Yeah, well, I thought, because like, when I recalled that that song was in this movie, I thought it was the Wilson Pickett version, but I looked it up. Yeah. And it says in the soundtrack that it's a cover by guys, so. They probably, it was probably for like, you know, what do you call it? Oh, it was Royal, probably like cheaper to get the Royalty right reasons or something. Like it was cheaper to pay for an artist to cover it rather than have like the original. Uh, but yeah, didn't they play it? It was like when the the main character guy shrunk to fairy size, and then like the the fairy people discovered his tape player, and they played it, and that song came on, and they all freaked out. <laughs> that was good a good. Stuff. That was a good movie. Yeah. Oh, actually, I own it on DVD because. You um, g- you gave it to me too. It's signed by Bill. Oh wait, who gave it? No, Ryan gave it to both you and I. That's right. And then, yeah, they're both signed by Bill Croy, which is really cool. Yeah. yeah oh, that's right. That. Our birthdays are on the same day. Or... Wasn't that on our 21st birthday? I think it was. Because that night we went to Denny's at like 1 in the morning. Yeah. Then that and was... I remember him giving that to us. But yeah, we hope you had a thousand dances in your head when you listened to that song. Yeah. And a thousand is a... Multiple, is a, it's a 
Hold on, I, I got your transitions. I got this. I got this. <laughs> and a thousand is a factor of one. So there you go. Transition. The next song we have is uh, a po- "The Power of One" by Donna Summer for the uh, movie Pokemon 2000. And 2000 is a thousand times two. That's true. You see, you see, I made that connection there. You know, another thing you could have done, you could have just said, you know, speaking, because we were talking about Pokemon earlier. Now we're going to tie it back in. No, that's too easy. That's not as fun. Yeah, way too easy. (laughs) Um, So yeah, the the song The Power of One by Donna Summer. I remember Pokemon, and this was obviously, I think this was the second Pokemon movie that came out, and it was like massively big because Pokemon was still massively huge at the time. Um, The song itself was actually composed by Marvin Warren and Mark Chait. It was actually released in late 1999, but that was back when, between like late 99 and the entire year of 2000, Everything was just something 2000. <laughs> or 2K. Because people were freaking obsessed with that, like, oh my god, we're on a new millennium. Yeah, that was a huge thing. Yeah, and remember, remember the Y2K scare because people are really stupid. Oh, and all the stores. I remember people, being in, like, Walmart as a kid and seeing, like, the the aisle has all, like, the bottled water and stuff was all cleared out. Yeah, because... Because pe- everyone was all paranoid. God, people are... That just showed, like, how completely, what's the word, like, naive that America was about technology even at that time. <laughs> Wait, so the whole scare was that, like, the computers weren't going to handle changing to 2000 or something? They, yeah, they said, like, that the computers didn't have the correct code for the clocks, the internal clocks of the system to change over to 2000 from 99, 1999. So, like... How short-sighted it, would programmers have to be it to was, that? It was going to call it, yeah, really, right? <laughs> It was going to cause like the all the computers to sh- like shut down or malfunction, and everything was going to come to a grinding halt. Well, luckily that didn't that didn't happen. Yeah, that's that's exactly like a very good point. Like what Windows, because the latest system at the time was Windows ninety eight, which was just two years before two thousand. They didn't think, hey, maybe we should program this system to like, you know, be able to tell the date two years from now. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, that's too hard. Then we got to put in zeros and ones and stuff. Yeah, we don't have enough computer power to process two different. We don't have enough zeros for this. <laughs> God, that was dumb. So yeah, back to the uh, the movie Pokemon 2000. This was again second feature film of the massive super mega hit that was Pokemon and all its incarnate. I remember playing the first game. I want to say like '96. I got Pokemon Red because my cousin. Mm. convinced me to buy it, who at the time he was like 13 or 14, and I was like, what, six? <laughs> <laughs> and I just completely got addicted to it, and then it just exploded from there. I had the cards, I had watched the TV show, I watched the movies, I had every game that came out, <laughs> I, had little, I had action figures, I had a freaking like Pokédex thing that actually worked, sort of. <laughs> it worked in the 90s sense, in that it had like, you know, those old like, calculator-type LED screens. <laughs> oh, gosh. But another fun fact about this this song, because this is just hilarious to me, I don't know if any of you remember the presidential race back in 2012. The Republican, all the different Republican candidates were trying to run, vie for president. There was a lot of really uh, special candidates. We'll just leave it at that. One of those <laughs> candidates was Herman Cain, who is famous for owning a line of really crappy pizza places in the north e- northeast and in a 
presidential or Republican debate like, among all the candidates uh, that happened on like August 11th, Kane attributed the uh, the lyrics of the song, which he quoted for some reason, uh, to not Donna Summer, not anything to do with the movie, but to a poet. And he said that the poem was written for the clo- as the closing song to the 2000 Olympics. What? <laughs> However, the song was not actually included in the music list for the 2000 Olympics. <laughs> That's why it's stupid. So basically, a presidential candidate running for the highest office in one of the, in basically, arguably the most powerful country in the world, quoted the song of a children's movie, and then A, got the lyrics wrong, and B, thought they were from a song from the Olympics. Wow. This is the same guy, I remember this. He, his like whole financial like platform was what he called his 999 plan, okay. which was like a 9% flat tax on like sales, income, and something else. Okay. And what's funny is in doing a very small amount of digging, people came to find that in the original SimCity game that came out, and that you could adjust different variables such as taxes, uh-huh. and in the game, all the all three taxes that you were allowed to control started at nine percent. <laughs> so everyone so basically like, just got it from that game. Everyone basically was like, "Wait a second, did this guy seriously just get his entire economic platform from a video game from the nineties?" <laughs> and he was. Basically, in the sad no, the sad part about all of this, I'm not kidding. This guy was actually ahead in the polls at one point. Wow. Like, nice. he was like one one stu- one stupid remark not being made away from possibly being the candidate. Hello, uh, regarding the whole thing with the song, uh-huh. how long did it take people to realize that that was from no, The Power of One? From it's the, the internet, so I'm sure someone instantly realized it and instantly put it on Reddit or 4chan or yeah. something. I'm sure there's people out there that like know all of them. I, I think there's even a mashup somewhere where like they put they combine the song with his quote of it. <laughs> um, oh, it's pretty special. It's hilarious. Um, so yeah, that's pretty awesome and funny. So shout out to Herman Cain, I guess. Yeah. For bringing us laughter. Herman Cain, he brings the hurricane. Um, <laughs> so it's a Herman Cain. It's a Herman Cain. I'm pretty sure. Didn't didn't Gobert make that joke when he had him on the show? Probably. I don't know. <laughs> I'm pretty sure he just completely lambasted the guy. It was pretty awesome. That's hilarious. Um, so let's listen to a little bit of The Power of One by Donna Summer. And you can have the, the power bring, of you one. can have the power of a Herman Cain. So that was The Power of One by Donna Summer for the film Pokemon 2000, which was from 1999. Were you, you were, you, you said you weren't into that whole Pokemon fad, were you? Not entirely. I mean, I think by, by sort of through my friends I was. Yeah. I'm going to sound like a total douchebag for this, but I totally remember in like fourth grade, uh, at the height of Pokemon before, like I think every school in America banned Pokemon cards, like within a year. It was before they banned the cards, so obviously we'd all bring our cards to school and trade and blah, blah, blah. Well, there was this one kid who was, I guess, for lack of a better term, a little socially inept. 
okay. and didn't really get the whole Pokemon thing, and he had some cards. But one of the cards he happened to have was like a holographic, I don't know, one of the big three, like Charizard or Blastoise or something. Well, So a very rare card. Yes. You know, on the top of the cards, they had that thing, it was like HP, and then there was a number. Yeah. That was like their strength or something. Yeah. I remember I convinced this kid that the lower the number was, the better the card was. <laughs> Therefore, I was able to get his Blastoise, and I traded him something like a Diglett. <laughs> oh my god. Which had like 20. You are such a jerk. I basically traded like a <laughs> card that you get like hundreds of <laughs> for like a really rare card because I convinced him that the opposite thing was true. Wow. Good job, Kyle. Yeah. I should have been a used car salesman. <laughs> so yeah, that was one of the less uh, less stellar moments of my childhood on my reputation. Well, you had a good business sense. That and the fact that I got detention for becoming a terrorist. And this was, this was pre-9-11, by the way. How did that happen? Uh, I forgot the circumstances, but in one of the classes, like, to keep us busy, they gave us doodling paper to draw on, and on the back of that doodling paper was, for some reason, a Xerox copy of a blueprint of the school, which seemed really Oh, stupid. is this where you, like, drew bombs on Yeah, it? yeah. There was, like, a little, like, not like a blueprint of the school, but, like, a diagram to show where exits were. And because I forgot some show that was really popular, like Bomberman or some stupid show at the time, I was like, hey, I'm going to draw a bunch of cartoon bombs all over this. You know, like the old acne bombs. Right. Yeah. Well, I drew a bunch of them over it, and then I kept on doing that while in the next period, or the next subject, I guess, we were learning, and the teacher was like, what the hell are you doing? <laughs> she took the paper from me, saw there was a bunch of bombs drawn on it, and, like, reported it to the principal. And then I had to come in with my parents, and, like, the principal <laughs> would basically be like, you know, this can, is like, this can be considered as terrorist activity. And I was like, what? And my parents were like, okay... And I ended up just getting, like, one day's detention or something. Yeah. But, like, I kind of thought, I'm like, had this happened, like, post-9-11, I would have been, like, sent to Guantanamo. Yeah. The thing I don't get about that whole paranoia with, like, the kids being in trouble for terrorists, you know, whatever. Oh. It's just, like, they're, like, six years old. Like, what, I, ju- I, just, I just realized something. Yeah. I don't remember exactly when during the year that was. But remember, Columbine happened in 1999. Oh, so it probably was around then. So, yeah, there may have been a little bit of sensitivity because of that. I totally didn't even connect. That's probably what it was. Yeah, because I was nine nine or ten. Yeah, so, okay, that kind of makes a bit... Okay, that makes a little bit more sense, then. Um, So, yeah, that happened. I mean, you were... I promise... It, it was, like, the most harmless thing in the world. I was a kid who liked to draw, so I drew cartoon bombs. Well, everyone drew bombs and tanks and guns and stuff. Yeah, exactly. At least all the boys did. Yeah, because it's, like, action stuff. So I'm like, oh, I drew a robot with bomb arms that shoots I mean, tanks. where is a nine-year-old going to get bombs? <laughs> That's what I was thinking. I'm like, whatever. I remember I was just really distraught, though, because even as a kid, I cared a lot about my reputation. And I was just like, yeah. I'm in trouble. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that was uh, Pokemon 2000. What have we got up next, Mr. Peter? Coming up next, Mr. Peter, is the song Space Jam by Quad City DJs for the film Space Jam. This was probably... The best song ever? Well, not only the best song ever, probably, like, the best movie of the 90s. <laughs> I mean, like, as a kid. It was pretty damn awesome. This was a pretty damn good movie. Not only was it pretty damn awesome, it was pretty groundbreaking as, like, an animation. Because it makes, like, set live piece, Because it makes live action with animation. Yeah. Which, you know... Aside from like Roger Rabbit, wasn't really done. 
Right. Roger Rabbit was probably... Remember, Roger Rabbit was like late 80s? Yeah, that was late 80s. Yeah. Like 88. Um, but I think this one, even just story-wise, I think was you know, much better and very, uh, very popular film. The soundtrack for Space Jam is an ensemble of lively hip-hop and R&B music. The songs include many well-known artists, uh, such as Seal, Coolio, R. Kelly, Barry White, and Chris Rock, which is pretty cool. Wait, Chris Rock, like the comedian? Uh, supposedly. Oh, interesting. Barry White and Chris Rock uh, worked together on the song Basketball Jones in the film. Oh, cool. So, which I didn't know, which is cool. And I forgot that Seal had done, what was it, Fly Like an Eagle? Or no, what was it? Is that the one he did? No, so I'm like an eagle was like Seals and Croft or something. Uh, which maybe, one did maybe, he do then? Maybe he redid it. Well, yeah, it's a, I think it's a cover, but I don't remember what. Oh, okay, it was probably that one then. Um, I bet you it was that, because that sounds like... Yeah, yeah just, let me check it for... Yeah, it was Fly Like an Eagle, originally by the Steve Miller band. The soundtrack, I didn't know this, but the soundtrack apparently sold very well in its own right, and it was certified as double, plat- double platinum within two months of its release. Really? Which is really impressive. But then, um, in 2001, it was certified as six times platinum. I totally had that on cassette, by the way. <laughs> That's cool. Um, so yeah, very popular. So the song specifically, um, called Space Jam, was performed by the Quad City DJs, who were a um, duo from Jacksonville, Florida, and consisted of CC Lemonhead and Jay Ski, um, with occasional participation by Jelana LaFleur. And just going back from uh, to the guy named C.C. Lemonhead, have you ever seen the episode of Adventure Time where that Lemonhead yes. guy comes? Yes. That, makes, that made me think of Lemon Guy. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, the group, Quad City GJs, released just one album called Get On Up and Dance, which was released in 1996. That contained their most famous song, Come On and Ride It, The Train, which reached number three on the Billboard Hot 100. So considering they only made one album and weren't around for a whole long time, uh, it's pretty cool that they got a song up to number three. The Space Jam theme, which was uh, not part of that album, but uh, apparently got pretty frequent play on MTV and peaked at number 37 on the Hot 100. But yeah, Space Jam, probably my favorite movie from the 90s. Because I remember kind of like the part of the, the plot of the movie is that Michael Jordan quits basketball to be bas- a baseball sorry. player. Yes, thank you. Thank Which thank is you. funny because he actually did that. Yeah. Now he, But then he came, he came back. back because he's like, wait a second, I'm not good at everything. Yeah, but he came back before this movie was made, right? Yeah, I think by the late 90s it was like his kind of farewell tour uh-huh. of basketballness. But yeah, he tried golf at one point. He tried baseball. Oh yeah, he plays golf in the movie. The too, problem... Right? As, as, as cool of a guy as it was, the problem with, like, everyone telling you you're, like, basically the greatest person to ever do something is you start to think you're good at everything. Yeah. So then he went on to try to, like, do other things because he's like, I'm so good at basketball, I'm good at baseball, too. And he just bombed. Bombed. Yeah. Well, I mean, from his perspective, I can see the appeal to wanting to try to do something else. Probably just being good at one thing is kind of gets annoying. Yeah. Or repetitive. Maybe, maybe if he just wanted to try other stuff. But, yeah, I think basketball is his thing. Just a bit. And um, as you know, Kyle actually bought this on Blu-ray a couple weeks ago. Yeah, how Still is hasn't it? watched it yet. Oh, um, really? Yeah, I haven't uh, done it yet, but I'm proud to have that. Nice. I mean, aside from just being an awesome movie in general, do you have any specific memories of Space Jam? 
Um, I remember the part where they actually transformed into the monsters terrifying me because I was scared of everything as a child. Remember where they get the magical basketball powers and then they turn into the giant monsters of themselves? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I remember I liked... I was obsessed with Tweety for some reason because, like, of all the original Looney Tunes skits, I liked the Sylvester and Tweety ones the most. Yeah. Um, so I really enjoyed Tweety's cameos in that. I liked, um... Oh, uh... The actor... His name. Oh, Paul, Paul, Paul Newman. Um, I just thought Newman from Seinfeld. Well, yeah, there was Wayne Knight, who was Newman. Not in the movie, but he was in that, and he was pretty funny. And um, why can't I think of his name? Bill Murray? Oh, yeah, Bill Murray. He was in that, too. Yeah. And he was, like, really... There was, cause there's a lot of... I remember seeing the movie, like, maybe a year, a year ago or so, mm-hmm. and you get a lot more of the jokes, especially with him, because he's very, like, self-aware in the movie, almost. Yeah. And he has some lines like that. I think he plays himself. Yeah, or something. he does. So, yeah, that's kind of funny. So there's a lot, there's, there's, there is some stuff that you get as you watch. That's like, adult. that's, at, that's pretty much it. That's at least like one of two instances where he plays himself because he played himself in uh, Zombieland too. Oh uh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> the only actor that's funny enough to just play themselves. <laughs> you can get away with it. No, I just remember that movie being really cool, and I loved Looney Tunes as a kid, so of course I thought it was awesome. And the music was pretty awesome, too. Yeah, the music was... I, yeah, I had the cassette, and I thought it was, like, great. <laughs> Played that thing to death. God, cassettes were so stupid. They were cool at the time. Yeah, I guess. I remember, as a kid, I, like, won a cassette player. It was funny. It was kind of stupid. So, as a kid, I went to, like, this... Like, this one summer, I went to, like, this youth camp thing. And... Kyle camp? Yeah, sure. And, like, one of the ceremonies is at the end of every week you, like, would, I don't know, like, raise money or something, I don't know, something stupid. And whoever, they would have these scales, and whoever got the most money in weight, like, would win a prize. I remember one time... Wait, so whoever was the heaviest kid? No, no, whoever got the, collected the most money or change or whatever in oh, volume, okay. they would have a scale that weighed them, and whoever got the most would win a prize that week. My mom had the genius idea to take our winnings, go to the bank, and convert them into pennies. <laughs> <laughs> so I literally, like, during one of these ceremonies, walked down the aisle to put my earnings or whatever on the scale, and I literally had, like, a five-pound sack of pennies. <laughs> so needless to say, I kind of won. And I, on top of winning a hot fudge sundae for some reason, I won a boombox that had a radio Dude. and a cassette player. That's awesome. This is kind of funny. I don't know if I ever told you this. It had the ability to record, right? Hmm. So I would buy blank cassette tapes, and then um, you could. There was two decks. There was like so you could put like a music cassette tape in one, and the blank cassette tape in the other. So uh, yeah. I would actually record my own little fake radio shows, where I would like. Um, play music. I used to do that and too. Re- actually. Record it to the blank disc and then record me talking in between them, which is like yeah, the I used to kind of do that stupidest thing before. ever. But it kind of comes full circle, I guess. It's kind of funny. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I guess that's true. <laughs> I want to go back and find like, you know, cassettes from like '97 of you doing funk radio. <laughs> well, this was yeah. this was far before I was introduced to actual music. But at that point, I think I. Or is it whatever was popular, like Britney Spears or something stupid? Right. <laughs> I mean, but I mean, as a, I, 
you know, as antiquated as, as cassettes look now, I think if you look the the whole opportunity to like record yourself and everything as a kid, I think that's a really cool thing. Oh yeah, totally. So So yeah, that was one of my dorky moments as a child. Um, we should just call this the reminiscence episode, because seriously, that's like 90% of what it's... I mean, that makes sense, because we're talking about 90s animation. It's just funny. Yeah. So, I guess getting to the last... Well, we, let's listen to Space Jam no, first. No, no, we, we don't have time anymore, we can't, because it's a Space Jam. Uh, the last song is Searchin' by The Coasters, which is featured in the 90s film The Iron Giant, which is probably also one of my favorite non-Disney animated films. Uh, the Iron Giant was a 1999 animated fictional film uh, using both traditional and computer animation, produced by Warner Brothers. Um, it was actually based on the 1968 novel The Iron Man by Ted Hughes. The film was directed by Brad Bird, who we discussed earlier. And stars Jennifer Aniston, Harry Connick Jr., Vin Diesel as the voice of the robot, Ellie Marenthal, Christopher McDonald, and John John Mahoney. Um, I didn't know it was 1999. I thought it was earlier than that. No, it was pretty... I don't pretty, really remember. I think it came out the same year as, like, Atlantis, whenever Atlantis came out. Uh, okay. That was a good movie, too. The film, uh, The Iron Giant, is about a lonely boy named Hogarth, raised by his mother, the widow of an Air Force pilot. And Hogarth discovers an iron giant who basically fell from space. And with the help of a beatnik named Dean, they have to stop the U.S. military and a federal agent from finding and destroying the giant. The Iron Giant takes place in the month of October in 1957 uh, in Maine during the height of the Cold War. The significance of that is that in 1957, Sputnik was launched, raising the possibility of a nuclear attack from space, because America was paranoid. That's true. Anti-communism and the potential threat of nuclear destruction cultivated an atmosphere of fear and paranoia, which also led to the proliferation of films about alien invasion. Cool. In one scene of the film, Hogarth's class is seen watching an animated film named Atomic Holocaust, uh, based on the actual film Duck and Cover, mm. which offered advice on how to survive if the USSR bombed the U.S., and yes, the film actually told you to duck under your desk and cover. For That'll atomic, save you from the bomb. For an atomic bomb. <laughs> the film obviously has a very anti-war and anti-weapons message to it, mm-hmm. uh, where the, the Iron Giant sees a deer be killed by some hunters. He notices the two rifles discarded by the deer uh, next to the deer's body. I don't know why you would discard a rifle yeah. using it, but whatever. Um, uh, it's like, oh, I shot it once, it's useless now. It's like like paper plates. Wait, so they leave the deer and they leave the rifles behind? Yeah, I don't know. It's the worst hunting ever. <laughs> I guess the Iron Giants becomes hostile to any sort of gun after that moment because he sees how guns can be used to kill. Mm-hmm. And that the repeated is this motif is repeated throughout the film where Hogarth says, guns kill, and he constantly reinforces to the robot, you're not a gun, because he feels he's basically, the robot feels he's basically just a weapon of war, and Hogarth constantly tries to tell him, you are what you choose to be. Cool. You don't have to be 
a weapon if you don't want to. Kyle, um, can I tell you something? No. You're not a gun. No, I'm not. I'm a love machine. I'm a love gun. In the film, there's because it's set in the late 50s, there's a lot of cool 50s music featured, uh, most prominently of which is the song Searching by the Coasters. And the song Searching was actually written by Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller, specifically for the band The Coasters. It was released on Atco Records in March of 1957, ironic, same year, yeah. and it topped the Rhythm and Blues chart for 12 weeks and reached number three in the National Pop chart. Nice. Oh, it was actually also featured in another film that same year, um, October Sky. Remember that was the one about the kids? Oh, uh, that was a kids. good movie. Yeah, that was, with uh, Jake Gyllenhaal, I think. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so, so that was in both movies? Yeah, and they were both in 99, which is ironic. Didn't, yeah, didn't they both take place in the same time, too? Yeah, 1950, like 1957, I think, it's Sputnik. Remember, it was a big deal, so they wanted to build rockets. Yeah. So I guess that makes sense. So, yeah, no, Iron Giant was, like, an amazing movie. I think I need to procure that by legal means, um, too, because I don't have that. Mm-hmm. But I totally forgot that Vin Diesel did the voice yeah. of the giant. And I guess, I don't know if this has anything to do with it because, because of that movie, but for that, you know that new Marvel movie that's coming out, The Guardian of the Galaxy? Uh, yes. One of the characters in that movie, I don't know anything about it because I never read the comics, but I guess there's a character that's like a giant talking tree. Mm-hmm. <laughs> For some reason, that makes sense. Um, and they cast Vin Diesel as the voice. Nice. So I guess he's just good at being the voice of big things. <laughs> <laughs> because he's Vin Diesel. Um, and they got him for the robot and the Iron Giant because Vin Diesel's a very, like, robotic sounding name. Yeah. Because he's, he's, he's a diesel robot. <laughs> yeah. I wonder if that's his real name, because that seems like such a stage name. Let's yeah, find out. it's probably like Rob Thomas or something. Really? You know Rob Thomas is a real person, right? Probably. <laughs> Not a very... I don't know who Rob Thomas is. Oh, God. Vin Diesel, born Mark Sinclair Vincent. <laughs> I can see why he would want to get rid of the name Sinclair Vincent, though. Uh, so, and yeah. for the record... Rob Thomas is an American rock recording artist and songwriter. Told you. He, um, he did that famous song in the late 90s with Santana, like... Triple Platinum Hit Smooth with Carlos Santana. Yeah. On the album Supernatural oh, in 1999, yeah. which was the same year that we're talking about. Holy crap, everything ties together. Everything happened. Everything. That's um, a really strange coincidence. That is kind of freaky. Um, yeah, that's weird. Yeah, it seems like a lot, of the, a lot of the stuff that came up was, like, 99 stuff, because Pokemon was in 99. Mm. This was, yeah. Base Jam was 98. Whatever. That sounds yeah. right, yeah. Freaky. 99 was a good year for being a kid. Where a kid can be a kid. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, yeah, I think we should listen to a little clip of uh, the song Searching by the Coasters. Good song, good movie, yeah, and giant. Yeah, I didn't realize um, how much actually pretty good music that this movie has because it's been a while since I've seen it. But I guess it has a lot of like '50s rock and roll and jazz type oh, songs. Oh yeah, totally. So, and this is only one of those, so it's pretty good. For sure. Pretty sure this is the longest episode we've ever recorded. Yeah, we're, we're at like we're at like an hour and a half. <laughs> yeah, maybe by the time that 
it's edited down, it'll be shorter, but it's still very long. Indeed. And there's, which is funny because we've only discussed what, one, two, three, four, five, six, like 11 songs, I guess that's about right. I, I had a suspicion that this one was going to go long just because we have so much uh, memory. Reminiscing possibilities, yeah. Yeah, childhood and stuff. Childhood, exactly. But uh, we hope you were educated by the songs that we talked about today and Indeed. the films as well and got a little view into our funny little childhoods. We hope that you stay true to your heart so that you can stand out and discover a whole new world of beauty and as well, as well as beasts in the land of a thousand dances where you learn that you're the power of one and you're searching for sp- some space jams good job Kyle. shut up <laughs> well that's better than i would have done trying to tie all those names together yeah in terms of our show funk radio if you like what you heard you can subscribe to us on itunes by searching for funk radio onto the podcast section you can also like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash getyourfunk, which is where uh, not only do we post the episodes as soon as they're released, but we also now post Spotify playlists of all the songs that we talked about so that you can listen to not only clips of the songs, but also um, just the entire songs. So if you have Spotify and want to listen to some pretty good music, uh, we will provide that for you. Cool. So this has been your host, Kyle. And this has been your host, Peter. Thank you for listening to Funk Radio. Tune in next time for more. We love you. Bye. Bye. For more podcasts and the latest news in gaming, movies, and entertainment, visit 8thCircuit.com.